Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When we start today with the arrival of the COVID-19 vaccine, the first shipment of the vaccine arrived in Canada last night. 30,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine touched down at Montreal's Mirabelle Airport. The vaccine will now be rolled out to 14 distribution points across Canada. We've got terrific coverage and analysis for you on this important day in the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic, including my first guest. I'm very pleased to welcome him, Dr. Gary Kobinger. He's a professor in infectious diseases at Laval University, one of Canada's preeminent uh, experts. He led the team that developed Canada's successful Ebola vaccine, such a proud moment for Canada. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for taking the time for us. When, when we see this vaccine rolled out so quickly in kind of record time, uh, does, does that surprise you at all that we were able to, that, that labs were able to develop this vaccine so quickly? Well, listen, this, uh, this is really a, a, a great achievement. It's uh, in line with the most optimistic uh, prediction. Uh, I'm um, not surprised to tell the truth. We have seen uh, great uh, movement also and great achievement uh, done uh, during the, the Ebola uh, epidemic in, uh, in West Africa in 2014 to 16. And here again, we see it at a, at a bigger scale yet. Uh, and so it's very, uh, very exciting, uh, uh, actually. How did they do this? How were they able to do this in a matter of really kind of weeks and months as opposed to, in some cases, vaccines can take years to develop, but this was done so quickly. How did they manage to do that? Well, you know, there was a lot of, uh, of, of resources put uh, into those clinical trials, for example, uh, by combining, by, by organizing, you know, phase, there's three phases in clinical development of vaccine, and usually you wait after each phase, so at phase one, phase two, phase three, before you even start the, the, the next phase, and often there's months, if not years, in between. This time, phase one, two, and three were, were set up and were scheduled. Uh, some of the study did not go forward, which means that they had to put a lot of resources uh, to, uh, to get everything ready, but without knowing if it will continue. Uh, and some of them did go forward from one to two to three, uh, and this saved a lot of time. Another aspect yeah. was that there was a, a real-time submission of uh, the findings, all the data that were uh, accumulated to regulatory agencies, so they didn't have to review it once everything was done. They were reviewing it as they were moving forward. Okay, are you confident that the vaccine is safe? I mean, we've had some people say, well, they move so quickly with this vaccine. Did they cut any corners? Did they cut any corners in the development of this vaccine? To your knowledge, is the vaccine safe in your mind? Listen, I don't see any corners being cut. I think everything has been looked at. Uh, one has to realize two things. First, it's normal that people are out of their comfort zone. It's a process we're not used to. It's an emergency process. We have actually never seen that in the history of vaccination to have so, so much resources and people working on solving this issue. Uh, so, so it's important to talk about it to, and to continue the discussion. Uh, that being said, I know for a fact that uh, the data are the data and they were reviewed. Uh, it's normal that, uh, you know, the, the, the clinical uh, population, uh, the candidate uh, volunteers that, that participate in those, those studies are really representing the general population. I think it's expected that some exceptional event may, may happen that we've seen with allergy. This is not specific to COVID. It's not specific to, to, to this, uh, this process. It happens for any vaccine that rolls out at the population level. There is surveillance. There is continuing uh, observation of what's happening because uh, there is those exceptional cases of people that have very specific profile, whether they are genetic profile, clinical profile. So we may see those those cases of exception, but it's important to focus on the benefits to the general population, especially the people that are most vulnerable, that you know face a 20 to 40 percent case fatality rate, mortality rate, if they get infected. I'm talking about uh, a lot of the people that are in long long term care facility. Right. For them, this is this is key. But not only them, the healthcare workers as well that are often exposed to uh, high viral load, they are prone to severe disease. So 
so all these things with a small percentage of people vaccinated, you will see will have uh, already right off a very positive impact. All right, speaking to Dr. Gary Kobinger, he is one of Canada's preeminent infectious disease experts. He's a professor at Laval University. You mentioned uh, the possibility of some people having allergic reactions to the vaccine. We've seen a couple of cases in the UK where people received the vaccine and had a, and had a, a, an immediate allergic reaction. That's normal, though, right? I mean, that, that's normal with, most, with every vaccine, is it? Well, it's normal in this stage of development. So what's normal is that, you know, this could not be are fully anticipated uh, because people with strong allergic reaction were excluded from the clinical trials. So it's a, it's a selected population. But this is known, it's, it's, and so this is why when you go to the population level, these exceptional cases are being, are being monitored, if you want, and expected somehow without being precisely what will be the subpopulation that may have a stronger reaction. But it's important to know that that this is why it's done for every vaccine. You know, you go to get a flu shot, uh, usually you get the shot, you, you should stay, stick around for 30 minutes, 15 minutes to make sure that there is no, uh, for example, allergic reaction. So as, as data come in, we will see millions of people receiving those vaccines in the next few weeks uh, across the world. And, and I think this is going to, um, I think we will see the benefits and I think this is going to bring a lot of confidence. So what's important is to continue to share those data and to be transparent and to share in real time so that people can see the benefit and they can, uh, they can understand uh, everything about it. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you, and have a great day. All right, thanks. That's Dr. Gary Kobinger. He is a professor in infectious diseases at Laval University talking about the arrival of the COVID-19 vaccine in Canada, 30,000 doses of touching down at Mirabel Airport last night in Montreal. That vaccine will now be rolled out to 14 distribution points across Canada, including two here in British Columbia. As the COVID-19 vaccine has arrived in Canada and the first dose of the vaccine has been administered in Ontario, a support worker at a long-term care home in Toronto received the first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine in Canada this morning. Other support workers at the facility, including a registered nurse and a registered practical nurse, also set to receive the vaccine this morning. So the vaccine is here. The first shots have been administered in Canada. The vaccine will be on the way to British Columbia. Let's keep talking about this now with my guest, Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Brian, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me back. Okay, an exciting day here for sure. What are your thoughts on the, the first dose of the vaccine being administered in Canada here this morning? Oh, this is truly exciting. I was just watching on uh, television the administration of the vaccine, people cheering, smiles on people's faces. This is the beginning of the end. It's going to be a long journey, but it has now started. Okay, it is exciting. Let's uh, listen to a little bit of sound here just in from Global News. Uh, this is uh, reporter Marianne DeMaine in uh, Toronto uh, reporting on the first vaccine for COVID-19 has just been administered in Canada. Have a listen. Uh, five people who are all from the Rakai Centre here in the city, all the first to get this Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 shot in Ontario and, of course, a very historic moment. We know now they'll, of course, be monitored. They still have to get a second shot a few weeks from now. And uh, really, though, Anthony, this is quite a symbolic moment as well because we know so many Ontarians, Canadians, in fact, were keeping a close eye on the developments with this vaccine. And seeing this now, the first shots administered here in the city uh, will likely ease a lot of minds for people who were a little apprehensive about how quickly this all played out. Okay, that report from Global News just in the last few minutes with the first vaccine shots being administered in Toronto this morning. Speaking to Dr. Brian Conway. Uh, Dr. Conway, what's your understanding about the vaccine and when it will arrive in British Columbia? When can people expect to start receiving the vaccine here? Well, I think there'll be some doses that will be administered later this week. My understanding is it will be only in two specific locations in the lower mainland. Individuals have been selected. They will have to come to where the vaccine is uh, being administered. There will be uh, measures in place to ensure that they will come back three weeks later for that all-important uh, second shot. This is a dress rehearsal for the big show where we will, over the coming months, uh, probably immunize the majority of the population of British Columbia. Okay, that's amazing. And frontline healthcare workers expected to be first in line? Yes, absolutely. I think the two groups 
that need to receive the vaccine is those that are at highest risk of becoming infected and those that are at highest risk of severe disease or dying from becoming infected with COVID-19. So this is long-term care facility residents, healthcare workers, and then others will follow according to those criteria until everyone's been vaccinated. Okay, it's exciting. It is V-Day in Canada. The first vaccine dose has been administered in Ontario, the vaccine on the way to B.C. Let's take a few phone calls here. 604-280-9898 if you have a question about the COVID-19 vaccine. 604 604- 280-9898 star 9898 toll free in your cell dr brian conway is my guest let's go to pat on the line in abbotsford hiya pat good morning happy to hear the news and uh, happy to thank all the hard-working people who are going to be administering it my question uh-huh. is uh once they get past the uh, uh mandatory medical workers and uh, support staff etc and they get to the general population or the age 80 down how will they actually select people? Will it be off our medical plan numbers, or will it be from our doctors, or how will it actually go forward? Okay, that's a great question. Brian, have you received any kind of briefing on that? Yes, I think it will be, again, according to the individuals that are at highest risk of becoming infected or at highest risk of uh, being uh, sick, and it will also be according to the number of doses that are uh, that are available. So I think it'll be done fairly. It'll be done hopefully in an orderly fashion, and we'll get to everyone by the end of the summer. Okay, so let's say you're uh, a person in your 80s, but you're you're not sick. You're not displaying any symptoms of illness. When would that a person like that be able expect to receive the vaccine? Do you think? Do you think they'd be near the front of the line? Well, I think that according to the number of doses that'll be available. That's the kind of person that would end up being vaccinated by March at the latest. And let's all understand that we still have to personally distance. We still have to wear masks probably until the end of the summer, regardless of whether you've been vaccinated or not. So this is a marathon. It is not a sprint. But that kind of person, I would say by March. Yeah, like one one of the questions that occurred to me, and I heard someone ask this uh, on the weekend, was once you get the vaccine, if you're exposed to the virus after you get to the vaccine, can you possibly pass, can you still pass the virus on to someone else if you're asymptomatic? That's not something that's been determined yet. The results of the clinical trials are still being analyzed. And this is yet another reason that until the majority of the population has been immunized, we still need to wear masks and personally distance. Okay, my guest is Dr. Brian Conway, Vancouver Infectious Disease Center. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to Mark in Surrey. Hi, Mark. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, hey, Mike. Hey, how you doing? I just wanted to say, like, I just want to make a comment uh, really quickly. Not everyone that doesn't, doesn't want to get the vaccine, like myself, should be called an anti, anti-vaxxer. I just care about what I put in my body. Uh, because I know what this vaccine is. It's a mutagenic cellular reprogrammer. It changes every cell in your body. Mike, and to your guests, these are uh, nanotechnological vaccines that have not been put in the human body before. So for that reason, Mike, I'll be declaring the, the Nuremberg Declaration of uh, not being experimented on by my government. Okay. And well, we'll let's let's see what a, let's see what an Thanks. expert let's see what an expert Thanks, says Mike. to that. Thank you, Doctor Conway. When you hear something like that from someone who says they're worried they don't want to take the vaccine, what do you say to them? I would say that the vaccine will not be forced on anyone who does not want to receive it. However, it's important that we have a very good discussion about why people don't want to receive the vaccine and try to explain as an example that the eventuality that was just described that this is a mutagenic vaccine has been examined in the laboratory before this was even administered to humans and although i cannot say it is completely uh, impossible that the events that uh, were just described may occur it is highly 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 unlikely and this has been looked into as part of the development of the vaccine. Let's take some more calls here. Annette on the line in Surrey. Hi, Annette. Hi, good morning. Hi. Uh, My concern is uh, I'm over 80. My husband and I will be taking the vaccine when available. But um, I have a family of five. They're they're not in my bubble, haven't been in contact, but I haven't seen them. But one of the... um, uh, girlfriends of my grandson is saying that they're not getting the 
vaccine because of it it alternates or changes the DNA. Yeah. Mother works yeah. at the uh, ER in a hospital, and now I am concerned that if they don't get it, my daughter, son-in-law, etc., I don't think I'd be comfortable seeing them. I hear you, Annette. Thank you for the call. There's a, these are conversations families are going to have. Dr. Conway, we've just got a minute left. Do you have any advice for her? Well, I think we need to have that conversation um, on an ongoing basis. I think that she should get the vaccine when it is available because of the risk of her becoming seriously ill if she were exposed to COVID. As for the rest of her family, I would, I would welcome the opportunity to have an open discussion about their concerns, and hopefully we will be able to address them and have them be part of okay. what will be the solution to the pandemic. Dr. Conway, thanks for coming on today. Thanks. Let's all hang in there. The show it has now been more than two years since two senior officials at the B.C. legislature were escorted dramatically out of the building. Craig James, the former clerk, Gary Lenz, the former sergeant at arms. It all had to do with an investigation into inappropriate spending and misconduct at the legislature by my next guest, Daryl Pleckis, the former speaker of the legislature. The investigations still continuing after he pried the lid off of this scandal. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Mr. Pleckis, thanks for coming on. Thanks for the invite, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. You've written a new report, uh, a final report called Unfinished Business, as part of your efforts to clean up the legislature. What, what is the main highlight of this report, this final report to the people of B.C., that you want the people to know about? Well, you know, for starters, there's a, a whole collection of reforms that I'm proposing in there. Uh, it sort of articulates all of the things that we've put in place, policies, etc., to really bring a greater degree of transparency and accountability to the legislature. But the, the unfinished business is, is what's really critical. And one of the most important things is the need for a whistleblower policy. Uh, you will know the specific reference to a particularly egregious incident there. Uh, that's one thing. There needs to be a complete restructuring and overhaul of security at the legislature. Um, there needs to be there needs to be a fundamental change in the in the culture. I think there's been a way of operating there which is everything but enabling people to get to the truth. Uh, at any kind of wrongdoing or any kind of change that needs to take place. There's, there's, there's a, a culture of stopping things before they can get off the ground. Um, oh. And none of this, of course, is in the best interest of the public. Let, let me ask you about what you just referred to there, an egregious example of misconduct. I know you talked to a lot of employees at the legislature building, former employees, Many of them came to you with complaints. Can you talk to me about this this egregious example that you cite in the report? This is a sexual misconduct complaint. Is that correct? Well, I would describe it as a sexual abuse. It was a it was an inappropriate relationship uh, which deserved attention. The person who was the victim of that uh, called for it to be given attention. Uh, and they moved heaven and earth to try and get that. And ultimately, they ended up reaching a, a settlement on the matter uh, with the usual non-disclosure agreement. Uh, but the person who, uh, who it happened to only was able to get to a place for a settlement once they threatened to go to the media on the, on the matter. They couldn't even get the ombudsperson to look at this issue because the ombudsperson was told to pound sand. Um, what's particularly impo important about that, I brought that issue before Lamsey uh, via memorandum, which Lamsey asked to be considered by the McLaughlin investigation. It never saw the light of day. Lamsey, well, just just for the benefit of the listeners, uh, so they understand, Lamsey is the all-party committee of the legislature that manages 
uh, the legislative precincts, right? So you brought this complaint to them, and what? They didn't do anything about it? Absolutely nothing. Uh, in fact, I asked a number of times subsequent to that to individuals at the legislature and management and elected officials uh, to have that considered, and it never was. And why it's so important is it exemplifies uh, what it means for other people who have issues at the legislature. There's been, at our last count, a couple dozen different people who went to somebody at the legislature and said, look, there's something not right here, there's something wrong, you shouldn't be doing this, and, and they're walked off the property. Uh, and then, of course, and they decide a non-disclosure agreement. And, of course, people are uh, ready to do that because if they don't sign the agreement, they don't get their severance pay. Uh, but in many cases, this is under, under duress, uh, and people have no mechanism to complain. Uh, we have had employees who have told us that they have been assaulted by managers and nothing is done about it. And, of course, the person is reluctant to come forward uh, because they, they know that they risk losing their job. Uh, it boggles the mind that we have whistleblower policies and legislation everywhere in the Western world. Uh, the B.C. government introduced whistleblower legislation for government employees. What is so special about the Legislative Assembly that we can't have a whistleblower policy? And I'm reminded we've had over a dozen different policy changes to correct matters uh, since I first called attention to the need for it. Uh, we still don't have the whistleblower policy. Okay. Uh, it's it's really quite disturbing uh, that that this would happen in this day and age. And I know we've heard people say, oh, we take these matters seriously. Well, no, they didn't. They didn't take them seriously in the first instance because the perpetrator uh, was never, ever held accountable for that behavior. Uh, that's the other thing that continually happens at the legislature. You know, whether you have an audit or you have a review, there's never a time when it actually points to a particular individual where we can say, look, uh, you're the person responsible, you're being held accountable. The only time that has ever happened is once with McLaughlin, uh, the investigation where she found that the former clerk had been doing a number of things which were yeah. inappropriate. And of course, the Sergeant of Arms under the Police Act. And I'm reminded in the case of under the Police Act investigation regarding the Sergeant of Arms, uh, the only reason that investigation ever happened because I was yelling and screaming that it was going to happen regardless of whatever they wanted to do because they moved heaven and earth to thwart my every effort to, to have that investigation go ahead. I also asked for an auditor general's uh, investigation into spending. And as it turned out, uh, it was structured in a manner so that it was designed basically to tell us absolutely nothing. And of course, at the end of the day, it didn't. Uh, that's despite the fact that I went specifically to the Auditor General's office and said, look at this, tell me this isn't fraud. Uh, and it was completely ignored, completely off the table. Nothing happened. Okay. Uh, we yeah. had, of course, the security audit. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, you will know uh, the trouble we had getting people to pay attention to the need for that. Uh, rather than pay attention to what might be wrong, it was instead an attack on the people calling for attention to be given to the problem. Speaking to Daryl Plekis, the former Speaker of the B.C. Legislature, his final report to British Columbians called Unfinished Business on misconduct and, and inappropriate spending at the legislature. Everyone will remember uh, the drama of a couple of years ago when we had those two senior officials marched out of the legislature. Your report uh, disclosing inappropriate spending on designer clothing and jewelry and high-end travel. Uh, the, the, of course, the famous $13,000 wood splitter and trailer uh, that was parked for a time at the at the home of the now-suspended clerk. Uh, the police are still investigating this, and this is two years after the fact. 
Do you have any insight into this investigation, and, and do you have any confidence it will wrap up soon? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm confident that it's not going to be too much longer. Uh, remember, this is a, was a very complicated investigation. The police had a significant number of officers working on this uh, over the the entire two years. I mean, we were communicating back and forth with police on one matter or another right up until the final weeks before uh, I finished up as speaker. Uh, but as we all know, you know, these things uh, take time because once the police finish whatever they do, then it has to go through the process of consideration by the prosecution service. Uh, but I'm completely confident that, you know, it isn't going to be too much longer before we get some um, announcements about that one way or the other. Uh, and I would be incredibly surprised if that uh, announcement didn't include uh, charges. Uh, but of course, I'm not privy to every single thing police and prosecutors do. In fact, I'm privy to nothing the prosecutors do. But I always come back to what's very troubling to me is we have a situation, have had a situation at the Legislative Assembly where People have clearly behaved in an inappropriate manner. And rather than people say, well, you know, let's get on and fix this and let's speak to that problem. Uh, we haven't done that at all. We still suffer from a lack of transparency. We suffer from a lack of controls. We suffer from secret decision making. We have this problem where uh, the public can't access information because we're not FOIable. Uh, we have this problem of non-disclosure agreements. We have this general problem of the whole place is insulated from public view. Uh, we are limited in terms of our access to the courts. Uh, I mean, it's if you think about all of those organizations historically that had have had one problem or another, whether it's the, the uh, churches like the Catholic Church or the RCMP, the military, uh, the legislature is very much like that. In fact, it's nicknamed the Vatican uh, because they, they've always considered that they can do as they, they darn well please. And uh, this is not serving the public uh, well at all. I'm reminded again of, just to put it in perspective, of how far away we are from what I think most British Columbians would expect. When it was discovered by McLaughlin, Chief Justice McLaughlin, that the clerk had uh, given himself monies he wasn't entitled to, the $250,000 retirement payout, that resulted in an agreement with him, basically, that he didn't have to pay the money back. There was no requirement. It was a non-financial agreement. And moreover, what is really disturbing is no one at the legislature... Uh, no employee, no elected official is ever allowed to say a negative word about that person. In fact, even more bizarre, no heir of an elected official or an employee is allowed to say that. So here we have an agreement signed on behalf of all elected officials, on behalf of all employees. And these people, of course, including myself, had no idea that that was the agreement. Uh, so it's placing an obligation on all of us, uh, which is particularly bizarre, particularly bizarre after it was discovered that uh, he's doing stuff with funds that he shouldn't have been yeah. doing. It was uh, it's it just boggles the mind that it was uh, allowed to happen. Final question for you. Uh, I know that you're you're frustrated by some of the reforms that you still are you feel are not completed. There have been a lot of changes brought in, though, in in the way that the place is operated. What would you say is say the the one the top one or two uh, reforms that have been brought into into place that you feel have, has made a positive difference? Just in a couple of minutes, we got left here. Well, I mean, there's a whole list of them of you know regarding spending. It's all I say. It's a collection of policies that require there to be more accountability and transparency and oversight 
in terms right. of how monies are spent. But I'm, I, I want to point out that, you know, one of the things I did, which I feel very good about, was the uh, develop the speakers forum, which occurred over a period of two and a half years, which had participants from around the province, some 80 different people from all walks of life, talking about what they think as members of the public. Uh, the legislature could do to facilitate the ability of elected officials to do their jobs better in terms of serving the public. Okay. And that resulted in a, in a report about what those should be. So hopefully those reforms and what I've included in my report will be considered by uh, the people at the legislature going forward. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks. Oh, here we go now with big-ass pickup trucks. Are they bad for the environment? Are they unhealthy for children and other living things? I'll tell you what, this one kind of went viral a bit on the weekend. Brent Totter and the former chief planner for the city of Vancouver. He's been a frequent guest on this show in the past. He had this red-hot take on Twitter. He wrote, trucks have been getting bigger, more energy and space-consuming, more polluting, more deadlier to everyone around them, including kids. Not because most of us need bigger vehicles, but as ego boosts, status symbols, and indicators of male virility. Big-ass pickup trucks getting smacked down by the former chief planner for the city of Vancouver. Brent Totter, and he's been a, uh, a frequent guest here on the show. And when I saw his tweet, which went kind of wild on the weekend, I reached out to him, asked him to come on. Uh, he didn't want to come on. He did not. He did not want to talk about this any further than, uh, despite the Twitter storm he unleashed on the weekend. But you know, we got to talk about this. Come on. So we got Peter McCartney now. He's a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. So this is an interesting take here from the former chief planner of Vancouver. But uh, big ass pickup trucks are are bad. Uh, they kill kids. Uh, they can they pollute they hurt the planet do you agree with them here that these pickup trucks are bad i mean i don't i don't think necessarily that pickup trucks are bad i think some people need pickup trucks uh i have to be honest growing up in alberta you know i always wanted a pickup truck so you know i don't think people are bad for owning or ha wanting to own a pickup truck um but you know there's no doubt that pickup trucks are getting bigger and bigger um, you know, they've, they've made some strides on fuel economy, but of course, because they're bigger now, they're, uh, they're using, um, uh, you know, more gas than a smaller car. And, you know, the design of these trucks is, if you listen to the designers intended to evoke, you know, it's coming to get you like, uh, you know, this menacing idea of a pickup truck. And the truth is that's dangerous in collisions and especially dangerous in collisions with children, which is what, um, you know, Brent is talking about. And so, you know, they, they have sort of spiraled into these, you know, behemoths. And certainly, you know, if you're a hunter or you have a boat or something like that, you need a pickup truck. That's fine. Um, but, you know, I, a good friend of mine uh, lives in the West End of Vancouver and, and owns this giant pickup truck that, you know, he can barely park. So, um <laughs> There's definitely an element of, you know, if you never take it outside the city, then do you really need one of these things? But if it makes you happy, you know, I, um, I, there's, I, I think the idea that we're focusing on, you know, individual consumer choices to solve climate change is uh, sort of a false start anyway. So. Well, but aren't they? Uh, OK, it's interesting to hear your take on it. Like, do you agree with with Brent Totter and that a lot of these large pickup trucks are status symbols? and indicators of male virility? Like, is this like a toxic masculinity thing? Um, you know, I think to some extent, uh, they're certainly marketed towards, you know, manly men. Um, I've, I don't know if you've seen the Ford commercial that was running a couple of years back where they asked kids what kind of car they thought someone drove. And, you know, there was the the guy who owns a bird and, you know, kind of twiggy sort of guy maybe what your listeners might imagine i look like and uh oh he owns a prius but uh you know the the real manly man own a pickup truck and so you know there's some truth to that i i don't know that uh masculinity isn't always toxic but you know in a in a 
at a point where you're you're putting people at risk just to uh, show off your uh, you know big menacing truck, then you know I think uh, you got to question what that's really about. But okay, but you mentioned yourself that when you were growing up in Alberta, you, you kind of dreamed of having a pickup truck. I mean, for a lot of people who are in cold weather climates, uh, a four wheel drive truck is is probably one of the first options they might look at for transportation in, in the city of Vancouver. I, I guess maybe people might make an argument they're, that they're not necessary, but here's what I'm wondering. Like a buddy of mine has a truck and he's like a weekend warrior. Okay. So he doesn't need it for getting to work, but if he decides to go fishing on the weekend, which he's passionate about, he needs a, a good four wheel drive truck to get up some logging roads to get to a lake where he wants to go fishing. Is that cool? In your mind, yeah. because you know, I mean, if you just if you just need it for a couple of days on the weekend, or you, or you need a pickup truck occasionally, maybe to move some stuff around to make some deliveries or take some stuff to the dump or whatever. Like, if it just comes in handily, handy occasionally, is that an adequate argument in your mind to own a pickup, a big pickup truck? I think so. You know, it's. I think people. Uh, you know, if it makes you happy and it allows you to do the things that you want to do, you know, go ahead. And if you're concerned about the climate, you know, maybe opt for public transit when you're when you're just commuting around in uh, inside Vancouver. It's probably easier than finding a parking spot and all of those things anyway. Um, but again, you know, there there are a hundred corporations that have caused seventy one percent of emissions. So I really I reject the idea that you know we have to be making these like personal consumer choices, and that's how we'll solve climate change. You know, the truth is, um, you know, policies, you know, such as the federal government's climate plan will mean that, yeah, you know, if you want to have a, a giant truck that you can go out to the lake and, and fish and um, do all those great things in British Columbia, you're probably going to have to pay a little more for gas. Or maybe that gas price that's increasing will uh, will get you to buy an electric pickup truck, which are, okay. are going to be on the market soon. One of the things that, that Brent Totteron tweeted about on the weekend that kind of got under the skin of a lot of people was his argument that these, these trucks are child killers, that it, that you can, that are killing children. They're dangerous to children. They're deadly. Is there uh, evidence of that? There have been some studies about the lethality of a large SUV or pickup truck in an accident when it hits a pedestrian compared to say, a smaller vehicle and there is some evidence that a, a larger vehicle potentially results in a deadlier outcome and in a collision your thoughts yeah and i mean that's one of the things we talk about here is um you know the safety of these vehicles they when they run these crash tests they're crash test dummies that are inside and you know people feel safe when they're driving a big truck um but the truth is you know the visibility is a lot more challenging i've driven these things and you know it's it's tough to see what's in front of you. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, smaller members of the population, like children, uh, are more at risk from that. And so, you know, I think I, I'm not an expert on these. Um, you know, I haven't looked into the studies. But, you know, it, it checks out to me that uh, it's probably harder to see, um, you know, a, a kid running out and playing street hockey or something like that if you're in a, a pickup truck that's six feet off the ground and so okay what you know. about okay you're a climate change campaigner pete for the wilderness committee and I know, I know this is your your passion and your life's mission here uh when people make their choices on these type of vehicles what about electric vehicles i mean suvs are changing i know that there's electrical there's electric and there's hybrid trucks coming out yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's, you know, the good news is that people can do the right thing by the climate and uh, and also, um, you know, be able to get out and do the outdoors uh, activities that they'd like. And um, yeah, you know, electric pickup trucks are coming on the market. They look cool. Um, I, I hope that they're uh, designed with, sort of, you know, the safety of uh, others in mind as well. And and. Yeah, I think I think that's a great option for uh, for folks that feel like they need a pickup truck to be able okay. to get around. Okay, Peter, stand by here as we take a quick break. We'll come back. Let's open the phone lines on this one and phone me and tell me what you think about this hot take here uh, that went viral on the weekend. Trucks getting bigger, more energy and space consuming, more polluting. Do you really need a large pickup truck? 
the argument from Brent Totteran, the former chief planner for the city of Vancouver. He argues that they're deadlier to people around them, including children. He says a lot of people don't need a bigger vehicle. He says it's an ego thing, a status symbol, an indicator of male virility. What do you think of that take? Pete McCartney is my guest. Let's go to some phone calls here, Pete. We got Hogan on the line in Langley. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Good. I just want to comment here. I just think the city thinks that uh, everybody who doesn't, you know, ride a 10-speed bicycle is the devil. You know, pickup trucks are great. I commute every day, and the people who are smashing their cars up and causing the my huge commutes in the morning are people driving these Priuses and these little Honda Civics. You know, those are the people that are dangerous to society and to kids crashing their cars. Like, I would... I would think in a pickup truck, aren't you, when you're sitting up higher, wouldn't you have a better field of view? Yeah, you got a great field of view. you got a great field of view. And you know what? These people need to stop riding their bikes to the coffee shop on on their spare time, get a truck, and go enjoy the outdoors. That's what I think. (laughs) Okay, Peter, what do you say to him? Um, Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think the biggest risk of a collision is the driver, but, I mean, there's... There's a difference between, uh, you know, driving out on Highway 1 or, or going out to the woods and, you know, driving around a residential neighborhood where, um, you know, you might not be able to see what's in what's directly in front of you, um, you know. But if I you're think, a resident, but if it's a residential neighborhood where you reside, where else are you supposed to drive your truck? Well, I mean, you better, uh, of course, you're going to have to drive it there, but you better... Keep an extra eye out because, you know, the difference between getting hit by a Prius and getting hit by a Ford F-150 is, is pretty substantial. Um, but, you know, I don't I, I kind of reject this idea that we're trying to, uh, you know, we think anybody that drives a truck is evil. I just think that, you know, there's there's no moral weight here necessarily. But what we're trying to do, um, you know, is, is get more people to to bike and, and to to walk, even if you do own a pickup truck. Um, you know, okay. it, take some of your trips uh, via non-polluting means. Let's go to Casey in Poco. Hi, Casey. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good. Yeah, I, just, just, I agree with the last caller. I drive, a, I drive a big rig. I got the best view in the world. When I'm driving my pickup, I yeah. see everything. And as far as fuel, my pickup gets better fuel economy than some cars. So I don't know where all this talk is. I think uh, your, your guest just nailed it on the head. It's just about bicyclists. And uh, they don't pay anything to ride on the road, so I don't know. What year? What year is your truck? 2017. Okay, because I was going to say, like later model trucks have become more fuel efficient. Yeah, what and then yeah. Uh, those those 350 F350 diesels. Yeah, they're better than my truck on fuel. Okay, and the vision, the vision yeah. is, is you can't get better vision. Oh so yeah, this thing about running kids over and all that. It, it, just making stuff up here. No, I mean you could if you have better vision. I think you got you're safer from hitting a pedestrian for sure. I think. Let's we've got lots of calls here. Silas in Abbotsford. Hi. Hey guys, how you doing this morning? Good. So I think all the callers are really nailing it on the head uh, with what they're calling in about and whatnot. Um, obviously, with newer trucks, we have smaller engines. Like I have a 2020 uh, Colorado with a little four banger in it. I maybe get about 800 kilometers a tank out of it. And uh, we use it for contracting and whatnot. Um, and the fact that um, he was talking about how trucks are child killers and whatnot, well, what about 10-ton trucks? What about semi-trucks and whatnot? Those would statistically be even more dangerous, wouldn't they be? Um, sure. With, with everything going on. Sure, but I guess his argument would be that if you're driving a semi-tractor-trailer or something, you're doing that because that's required for your job and i guess he would argue that some of these big pickup trucks are being driven by guys who don't really need a pickup truck oh i do agree with that some people don't need pickup trucks but if you're going out into the wilderness for fishing or uh well yeah or anything like that or using it for contracting work like what we do um they are necessary and we we're some of the best drivers on the road honestly we take our uh, time and we uh make sure that we uh, keep an eye out for pedestrians and whatnot, because obviously okay. we have the higher um, view range and whatnot, and we have to be careful with the bigger vehicle. Silas, thanks for the call. Let's go to Al in Abbotsford. Hi, Al. Oh, Hi. Yeah, well, no, I, I drive a van all the time, after uh, E350, and I have a few cars in that too, but I, I'd rather drive my van any day than, than, than uh, 
than my car and that because I can see everything. I can see yeah. a whole... Okay, I think we just lost Al there, but I think he I think he got his point in. Let's try and squeeze a couple more calls in. Jack and White Rock. Hi, Jack. Yeah, hi. Hi, go ahead. Um a lot of the you when you when you see a pickup truck, you don't know why it's being driven. You don't know anything about the owner whatsoever. You haven't tested his virility, you haven't tested anything. <laughs> Actually a lot of people who drive pickup trucks uh, are people who've been laid off and people who've uh, who are looking for work and people who want to do a little freelance work also retired people a lot of I know a lot of retired people as soon as they retire they buy a pickup truck because it gives them the potential for a little bit of after retirement income you know yeah, so you yeah, you, right. you, you you just don't you you just don't know you know so this is kind of um you know, uh, baiting people. That's all it is. No, you know? I hear you. No, I think it's a good point. Thanks for that. Let's uh, squeeze in another call. Ryan in Langley. Just got a minute left. Hi, Ryan. Hey there. Uh, define define a big pickup truck. Define a big pickup. Are we talking like a ten inch lift with forty inch tires? Or what would you about? What would you say, Peter? Would meet your definition of a like a real big ass truck. You know, I mean, I don't know enough about cars to know it, but I, I know it when I see it, right? It's the, yeah. <laughs> Some of them are really big. Left sounds right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Ryan, what's your point? You got 30 seconds if you want to make one. Well, well, there's 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 the two-wheel drive pickups that are big. There's four-wheel drive pickups that are big, but, you know, they're still low to the ground. They're not, they're not lifted or anything. You know, I've got a Dodge Diesel that I, I operate commercially, and I operate my pickup truck, and I... I, I, I operate commercially like i would operate my dodge diesel and yeah. there's no difference okay you know? ryan thank thank you for the call peter thank you for coming on today for an interesting discussion we got a lot of phone calls on it thank you hey you bet thanks for having me all right peter mccartney he is a climate campaigner with the wilderness committee an icbc customer heads up for a major announcement potentially coming down this afternoon at 115 p.m. today. Mike Farnworth, the minister responsible for ICBC, has a news conference with Nicholas Jimenez, who is the president and CEO of ICBC. They say the announcement is about improving affordability for British Columbians. That is coming down at 1.15 this afternoon. Make sure you keep it locked right here for that developing story coming this afternoon. What will be announced, I wonder? Hmm. Well, I know ICBC is scheduled to put in their annual rate application. If the government is saying this is about affordability, could you be looking at a rate freeze for ICBC this afternoon? Maybe a rate cut? Could they cut ICBC rates this afternoon? Also, don't forget in the recent provincial election, Premier John Horgan promised ICBC rebate checks. Remember that ICBC have been saving a lot of money here during the pandemic. Fewer people driving and fewer accidents. The ICBC have been saving a lot of bucks over there. The government under a lot of pressure to give some of that money back to drivers in the form of a rebate check. And John Horgan finally got around to it and said, yeah, okay, we're going to do that. Maybe that's going to be announced this afternoon. But I suspect this is something about your ICBC rates coming this afternoon. So we're paying razor sharp attention to that. Let's check in with Aaron Sutherland now. He is the vice president of the Insurance Bureau of Canada for the Pacific region of Canada. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Aaron. Always a pleasure to be here. Okay, what are your spies telling you? Do you know what's coming down here this afternoon? Uh, I don't have a lot of spies. Um, okay. We're at, you know, private insurers are actually being increasingly pushed out of BC's auto insurance system. But I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, they're supposed to give a, a rate application tomorrow. I suspect today we're going to see a, you know, a follow-up on the, the promised $400 uh, rate cut uh, we're expecting next year and potentially uh, something on a, a COVID-19 uh, rebate. But uh, we'll have to, to see in a few hours here. Okay, we'll see. This is going to be interesting. The rate, uh, the uh, the potential decrease or rate decrease for British Columbia drivers is something that drivers are looking very closely for. We're moving to a system of no-fault auto insurance here in British Columbia next year. And the government has said that is going to save ICBC a lot of money because they're going to try and cut a lot of these lawyers out of the action. The lawyers hate it, but that's that's where we're going. Uh, and the government has said that could save the average driver $400 a year, correct? Yeah, so I think they're saying, you know, premiums today average about $1,900. 
you're not just removing legal fees. I, I think it's really important to point out that no fault will eliminate your ability to uh, sue for pain and suffering damages and, and really to uh, seek legal recourse if you don't think you're getting uh, the, the the benefits you need to recover. And so it's, you, you know, case in point, pain and suffering awards today uh, for a minor injury, uh, a little over $5,000 uh, May one next year under no fault will be precisely zero. So there is a there is a big loss for consumers here as well. And then so I just just want to really caveat: no fault isn't all sunshine and rainbows. Uh, I would actually disagree that it's in the best interest of drivers. But it, it you know ICBC is saying it will lead to about four hundred dollars in savings per customer. How long those savings last? You know that's the other big question mark here because in bringing forward that rate cut, I think ICBC projected uh, they'll lose about seven hundred million dollars as a result. Um, for a company with very little in the bank to begin with, that's a, that should be concerning about how long those savings will last over the okay. long term. Okay, I certainly take your point there about no-fault auto insurance. And for people who are severely injured injured in a car crash and they, they lose the ability to sue, um, that's a, a major impact on them. Now, on the other hand, the government is saying that they will dramatically increase uh, the amount of benefits available to people who are, who are injured in a car crash to, to help them heal and get back on their feet again. So that's part of this very complex move to no-fault auto insurance. But I guess the bottom line for a lot of people is, what does it mean for me and my wallet? And I anticipate, I suspect that this afternoon, uh, the government may announce that they will not be applying for a rate increase because of the looming uh, no-fault system coming online next year and that they will follow up and, and make good on their promise to have cheaper car insurance for most British Columbians in the new year. I, I think that's what's coming. The, the other thing that they promised, of course, as you mentioned, is a rebate check, a pandemic rebate, because ICBC had been saving money uh, during the pandemic. How much could that be, Aaron? Do you know, like if they, if they keep the promise on a rebate check, how much, people, how much money could people expect to get? I mean, well, that, that, that's the that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I mean, we know uh, at their last update, which I think was in September, ICBC suggested that claims had fallen as much as thirty seven percent. I know I'm using my car a heck of a lot less. I'm not going in, into work to and from. You know, I'm doing the working from home thing, like many other folks I know. Uh, so ICBC has seen a significant reduction in claims. And while almost every other insurance company in this country or drivers in every other province have seen a, a rebate to account for that from their car insurers. Uh, you know, here in BC, we're still waiting on ICBC to, uh, to, to follow suit. Maybe we're going to see something on that today as well. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. I hope they keep their promise on that. What has been the, the typical rebate in other provinces? Uh, you know, it, it varies. We all have very different systems. Uh, BC's system today is very similar to the system in Alberta. In Alberta, drivers have, uh, eligible drivers, I should say, have seen about $300 in savings and in rebates on average. Um, you know, in Manitoba, uh, their government insurer has returned, I think, just over $200 to their drivers. Uh, so we'll have to see uh, if and what ICBC does. Uh, if so, kudos to government for, uh, for forcing these guys to uh, start treating their customers uh, with the respect they deserve. Right. I mean, that's the public's money. That's the driving public's money. So if they're saving money, I think some of that money should flow back to, to drivers. So we'll see. We'll see if there's more information this afternoon on a promised rebate for BC drivers. Maybe it's a couple of hundred bucks on average per driver. Uh, we're going to find out here this afternoon, one fifteen p.m. Uh, Aaron Sutherland is my guest, Vice President of the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Last week, Aaron, ICBC announced that BC drivers will finally be able to purchase and renew their auto insurance online but not until may of 2022 which is a long time to wait what are your thoughts on that i don't even know what to say these guys uh they're slow on a covid rebate um this this online auto insurance thing is just sort of it's getting a little bit ridiculous here may of 2022 is a heck of a long way off you can renew your car insurance again just like everything else online in your life, in other provinces where there's private insurers, even other government insurers have figured out a way to put auto insurance online. It's high time ICBC got with the program. Uh, if nothing else, just give drivers that convenience, particularly under, under COVID, that you don't have to keep going in, uh, renewing your, your, uh, your policy uh, in the office or over the phone. Let you just go with a click of a button and do it, just like you do you know, your banking, your finances, everything else in your life. It's yeah. uh, it's 2020 now. I don't know why we have to wait till 2022, but 
ICBC isn't exactly known for their speed, of course. Yeah, no, you can get a mortgage online, but you can't <laughs> renew your ICBC online, which I think is ridiculous. I mean, as, as just about every other major jurisdiction have online insurance? Uh, the only province uh, in this country that I'm aware of that doesn't uh, is, of course, Manitoba. They have a government insurer in that province as well. Uh, everywhere else, uh, you can renew your, your car insurance online. I, I do think, you know, um, a little bit of credit to, to the government here. They are holding ICBC account. They are pushing this organization to give COVID rebates, to find savings under no fault, to move online. Um, I just I yeah. just worry sometimes it's like they're pushing on a string. <laughs> ICBC is just very, very slow to get on. They are, they are taking their sweet time with it. I mean, May 2022 is just ridiculous to me. Now, they are moving to a complex overhaul of insurance in British Columbia and moving to this no-fault system. So I, I suspect that's part of the delay. But, you know, they should have had these services up and running years ago. I mean, there's just no adequate excuse for not having basic public services from this insurance corporation. You should be able to buy your insurance online. You should be able to buy a different variety of products from ICBC, too. Like, can you tell me, can you comment briefly on that? Like, what are some of the things that you know, drivers can typically purchase or services they can receive from, from an insurance company that you, you cannot get in BC. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, and, and I just want to, one last thing on the, the online. Yeah. Like, so they do say, oh, it's because we've got all these no-fault changes and we need to let people get comfortable with those. Well, purchasing online is a choice. So there's nothing that prevents you that if you want to go into the broker office and learn more about it, you could still do that. But, you know, give people the choice to just renew it online if you prefer just to, to read on the internet. Uh, like like most of us do in this day and age, uh, but yeah, you know, ICBC they've been very slow to adopt many things, but you know, um, online sales, but also usage based insurance, things like per kilometer insurance. In other provinces, uh, you can you take out a policy where you just pay per kilometer driven, uh, and we have seen massive uptake uh, of those under you know under the pandemic with people driving less, switching over to those kinds of policies and saving a heck of a lot of money. You know, ICBC, government insurance, monopolies, they're just not very innovative. They're not very adapted to their customers' needs because they don't have to be. It's it's one right, failing, yeah. I think, of it. Right. And, yeah. you know, it's the unfortunate reality we face in this province that, you know, we're, we're denied access to a lot of those those innovations, a lot of those improvements, and frankly, a lot of those savings uh, that other car insurers in this country have come up with. Well, that, that's what that ICBC has failed to follow suit. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the danger of a monopoly. When you've got a, an iron grip on the entire market, you've got a monopoly. Why should you innovate? Why should you offer people alternative services and modern services? You don't have to. They're still going to buy your insurance from you anyway. So that's why you don't get like a family discount or you can bundle your insurance with your home insurance or whatever. Will your ICBC bill go up or down? I suspect you might be getting a rate cut here this afternoon. Maybe, maybe. We'll see. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Marv in Kamloops. Hi, Marv. Good morning. Hi, go ahead. Listen, I have an 18-year-old granddaughter that I'm giving a Toyota Camry to. And I, I wanted to get a... While I was getting the transfer papers, I asked my broker how much would the cost for insurance for her, Uh-oh. and they refused to give me a quote. Can you give me any reason why that would be? Who, who refused to give you a quote? They refused to give me a quote for how much the basic insurance would cost for my 18-year-old granddaughter. You, you mean you mean ICBC refused to give you a quote? Uh, my broker did, and they told me to phone ICBC, and ICBC also refused to give me a quote. They said because she only had an L license. An L license. Aaron. Do you know what that's about? Aaron Sutherland. Um, once she gets her end, she'll be able to take out take out coverage. And if you go to your broker or call ICBC or even try their online tool that they've got, uh, or if you have her driver's license number, you should be able to, to get a quote that way. Oh, okay. So um, what, but, what's, the, know, what's the situation when you have an L well, and now someone else has to be legally with you, who I think is 25 and older, um, right. in that car. You theoretically be using theirs. You can't really be a principal driver if you're. So an you'd elf, be using their. You're using the insurance of the supervising ve- drive person in the vehicle with you. Yeah, and right. so what they would have to do is they they tell ICBC that you've got an L, and ICBC charges them. They're the only insurer in the country that does this, by the way. 
they charge, I think it's between like 150 and $210, depending on where you live, when you add an L to your vehicle. That's almost a disincentive to teach your, teach your kid to drive, but it's, it's something ICBC has done to, to fill some of those financial holes they've, they've had late, lately. But you, you should still be able to get a quote when they get the end, and I just encourage you to uh, uh, you know, work with your granddaughter and, and work with ICBC okay. and, and see what you can find. Okay, Marv, I hope that helps you. Jeremy in Abbotsford. Hi, Jeremy. Oh, hey, Mike. I just want to say about the savings today and all this. I, I take it with a grain of salt. Talk to me in four years at the end of their term after they've done this for four years in a row now. And on the no-fault comment, I was pleading with you and other media guys on Twitter before the election. It was really not talked about. And it, like he said, this gentleman, it is really going to hurt innocent victims and in crashes. And uh, I hope you interview those people in the next few years. The interview... The innocent victims, I should say, that aren't getting the proper settlement and care, because this is not going to be better than the system we have now. And for 400 bucks a year, I'd rather have the the option to be properly covered if I get yeah. innocent victim okay. and crash. Okay. okay, Jeremy, thank you for the call. Well, we've covered this issue very thoroughly on this show here, I would suggest to you. And I, I've talked to Horgan about this. I've talked to Farnworth about it. The Liberals in the recent election uh, promised not to do this, that they would go to a kind of a hybrid system where you'd have the choice to purchase a full tort uh, product, as it's called, that would allow you to sue if you're injured in an accident. And unfortunately for the Liberals, they lost big time. So this is coming at you, uh, whether you like it or not. But um, whether you think it wasn't talked about enough you know, we've talked about it a lot here, and it's coming. So, you know, the NDP won big. They got a big majority, and they've got the mandate to do it. We'll see how it works. Let's squeeze in one more call. John in Surrey. Hi, John. Hey, Mike. Hey. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. we got a minute. Go ahead. Hey, so I had to go to New Brunswick for one year, a little bit over a year, and I had both my vehicles there. It was $1,670 for both vehicles, and here, both the same vehicle, same coverage, $4,800 for both vehicles. Oh, oh, ouch. Thank you for that call. We got 30 seconds, Aaron. I mean, I don't know. If ICBC was here, they would say it's cheaper auto insurance here than other provinces. But your thoughts, 30 seconds. It's kind of a layup for me at the end here. But, uh, you know, like, <laughs> we hear this all the time when people from other provinces move to BC. Uh, they go to insure their car, and there is massive sticker shock. Um, you know, I think more than often, more than often that's, that, that's the case. It's not always going to okay. be the case, but at the end of the day, the best thing we can do is people deserve a choice, whether that's ICBC okay. or somebody else. You should be able, the best way we can make sure ICBC is affordable is to give us the option to take our business. Thank you for coming on. Don't like what they're giving. Thank thanks you. for thanks for coming on, Aaron Sutherland, Insurance Bureau of Canada. The light at the end of the tunnel is real, and more importantly, it's coming. In a big freezer truck making its way across the country, the COVID-19 vaccine has not only landed in Canada, it's now being distributed all over. So it now becomes a matter of time. Now, unless you're a frontline healthcare worker, somebody who might be immunocompromised or a senior, the timeline is critical to the success of everything else. Social distancing, wearing your mask, washing your hands, following the restrictions that are in place. All of it summarized effectively in the latest article from Mel Woods. She is the associate editor at Huffington Post Canada and joining us now to elaborate on those points. Mel, would you agree that until the majority of Canadians have that vaccine in the system, it is still so important to do our part to flatten that curve? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot about how uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry said here in BC, everybody who wants to be vaccinated should be by like September-ish. And it's like, that's still nine months away. <laughs> that's, a, that's a distance of time for sure. So explain the lineup, if you will, because there is, of course, a priority to those who really need the vaccine, people who may be essential workers. And then there's the rest of us, the general population who are going to be asked to ride it out until the vaccines are available in larger numbers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you look at the, the people who are getting uh, vaccinated today is those people are talking about, you know, the first vaccinations were going out to long-term care residents in Quebec, uh, healthcare workers in Toronto, and those are the people who should be getting the vaccine right away. Like, the vaccine's going to come as, you know, we have the Pfizer vaccine now, the Moderna vaccine will likely be approved soon, other vaccines may come, and as those kind of shipments come in, they're going to go to those priority groups first, and the rest of us, you know, I'm 25, I'm young, I'm healthy, I work from home, I'm not an essential worker, I'm last in line, and so I've kind of made peace with uh, sitting out waiting my turn, letting all those in front of the line go first uh, and, you know, still wearing my mask and staying home and doing all the good things because at least we know we have a, we have a, a tangible sense of when this will be 
not even over, but like get better. And like you said, we can go back to, I just want to sing karaoke again. That's my big thing I've been looking forward to. And one day, one day I will be able to. My first song back at karaoke, I will survive. I mean, I think that's fitting. Uh, Mel, do you get the sense that there is a growing suspicion that the rich and the elite will try to bypass the people waiting in line and snap up the COVID-19 vaccines for themselves? I mean, we saw the NHL, for example, get in hot water last week when a report surfaced that the league was looking into privately purchasing vaccines for their players, their coaches and staff uh, in preparation for next season. People can argue that professional sports could be considered essential in some way, but in the bigger picture... It just felt like the rich and famous were once again flexing on the rest of us. I mean, I think we see that with lots of things, and it's not like there isn't precedent for that, particularly with the NHL. I mean, Alberta Health Services and the NHL got into some trouble back during the H1N1 uh, outbreak because members of the Calgary Flames hockey team in Calgary got the vaccine before some healthcare workers and uh, elderly folks and immunocompromised folks um, kind of going on that they had a private clinic set up uh, by Alberta Health Services. And so I think that there's precedent for people to be concerned about this. We've seen the rich and powerful, you know, have more access to COVID testing, for example. You talk about rapid tests and the ability to do certain things, you know, you know, Trump gets a COVID test every day. That's something that is not accessible to, you know, a, a long-term care worker who's working three jobs. Like there's definitely precedent for rich and powerful kind of jumping the line. And I would not be surprised if, you know, Flash forward is three, four months from now when the vaccine is still like fairly limited in its availability, but it's rolling to people that you'll see, you know, Instagram pictures of a Kardashian private island party with the caption saying, oh, everybody's vaccinated. It's fine. Meanwhile, there's still people who are waiting in line to get it. And so I do. I am personally skeptical that the, the rich and famous won't try to or find loopholes around. And I know the NHL has backtracked that comment, um, but I think other organizations, other powerful people We'll try and find ways to be able to get there as quickly as possible. In the same breath of people not wanting to see professional athletes get priority over anyone else, there are some that would argue that uh, politicians shouldn't get special treatment either. Now, personally, I don't think there's any problem with the prime minister or the premier getting the vaccine. They govern millions of people. They are, in fact, essential. But listeners have shared their opinions on this station, saying that they should also wait it out just like the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's two sides to that, though, because I think there is value. There's a certain value in the sense of high profile figures very publicly getting the vaccine, especially for folks who are hesitant. And there are, there are some people who um, are still on the fence about this vaccine, who have read, you know, some of the things going around on the Internet about it and feel unsure. And so I think for some people seeing, you know, whether it's Trudeau or if it's Horgan or other kind of high profile figures getting the vaccine very publicly might help reassure them and get them for themselves. So there's definitely value in that sense. Um, and there's just the kind of, I think, logistical aspect of the fact that a lot of these figures are traveling, they are interacting with people, they are, you know, conduits for it. You look at, you know, the high profile politicians who have gotten COVID and it's, you know, like conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. And there you can trace back the line of people that he interacted with that kind of led to that and his various staffers. And same thing with all these, you know, COVID outbreaks that happened in the Trump administration. So I think that there is some sides that would argue that 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 work, government work continues on and that there's a case for people to get to the vaccine um, and the optics side. I know Horgan has said that as soon as he's kind of permitted to his place in line, that he will get it and he will get it very publicly to kind of prove a point with that. So I, I think that there's kind of value on either side of it. She is Mel Woods, associate editor at Huffington Post Canada. Mel, appreciate your time here today. Yeah, thank you.